thank you for this podcast. I've just recently discovered it, and it's been a blessing to me as I learn more about the great game of baseball from an umpire's perspective. Here's my question for you today. Would you walk us through how to have an amazing pregame plate meeting? What are the ingredients to have an excellent pregame plate meeting with the coaches and your crew? Thanks again, Kevin. Thank you, Stephen. I really appreciate the voice message. Uh, on many occasions, I've mentioned that here to the listeners that that's a great way to get a hold of me. You just go to the anchor.fm um, webpage here for the podcast, and you get 60 seconds uh, or less to say whatever you want to say. And you can say a lot in that amount of time. Okay. So I appreciate that. And, um, you know, the, the whole topic of a good plate meeting. Well, a good plate meeting. Um, it starts before the plate meeting. You know, it starts when you get there with your partners, have a good pregame. Uh, you make sure you're familiar with the field that you are uh, going to be, you know, having the game played upon. And um, talk talk through all those things. You make sure you're looking sharp when you come out there. Everybody comes out at the same time walking with a purpose. Uh, and usually the standard is five minutes before first pitch that you get out there, right? So, of course, you would start out with uh, – you know, general pleasantries, just uh, saying hello and uh, introducing yourself to each of the head coaches. And of course, it's a great idea to know the head coaches' names before you get out there. Now, obviously, if you've had these guys before, then you probably do know their names. At least I hope you do, or just look it up again. But if you don't, you've never had the guys, make sure you know their first names. And so you can say, uh, hi, Stephen. Um, my name is Kevin Weber. Glad to be here today. You know, and then you say that, or hi, Jim, or whatever you might be. And, you know, this might confuse them a little bit. I've had that happen before where they are surprised that you know their name and they're thinking, if he knows my name, I must have had this umpire before, uh, but I don't remember him. And usually if they start thinking, well, I don't remember him, I don't remember anything bad, which is usually a good thing. They don't remember anything bad. Now, if they see you coming out there and they're like, oh boy, um, because you guys had some kind of run-in or some situation before, Okay, you know, you got to kind of get past those kind of things. But uh, if you can do that and you know their names, that's always a big deal. And, of course, it's always great to um, deal with people on a first-name basis rather than coach or umpire or blue or anything like that. We don't want that. We want to be on a first-name basis as much as possible because it's much harder to get mad at a person with a name than just a title, right? So um, that, those are the first things. You, you do that. You keep that short and sweet. And the, the whole plate meeting is going to be short and sweet, man. We don't want it to take forever. So first, you've got to get the lineups uh, from each team. We always start with the home team. Uh, get their lineup first. Confirm it. See if there's no final changes. If there are, you've got to make sure both managers know what they are and that they're on both of their copies. And the scorekeeper, if there is one, knows as well. And you do that for the home and then the visitors. Um, then you make sure that everybody's properly equipped based on whatever level and rules that you are you know, using for that particular game. Um, or, and then, you know, then we have ground rules. Now, if it's a neutral site, you're going to have to go over the ground rules. Uh, but if it's, uh, the, uh, you know, most of the time it's somebody's home field. So you have that home coach go over their ground rules and you pay particular attention in case there's some questions that you, or maybe your partner or partners, might have as well um, if there's something a little tricky, all right? If you have to go over the ground rules, we start in back of home plate, like the backstop, okay? And then we go clockwise around the field and explain anything that you might see. And if you know that you're going to have to give the ground rules, you might want to take a peek at the field uh, before you have to do that. But sometimes that doesn't happen, so you can usually figure it out as you go around. You start with backstop, see if there's any, you know, Issues there where a ball might get through or, you know, some weird carom might happen um, if something, you know, deflects off of something. Dugouts, of course, are particularly important as far as openings and how they are set up. And so how you're going to play that, if people are stepping in and out or whatever. If there's any um, strange things with fences, you know, you got to play, you know, make sure you explain those things. Um, if there's a tarp or a bullpen or something, that might be a situation you talk about those. Um, talk about um, anything that might be hanging over any fences anywhere, particularly in play, like in the outfield. 
scoreboard if there is one, if it's recessed or if it's in play or flagpoles or any such things like that. And you just move it all the way around clockwise until you come back to the plate. That's the main way you do it and you keep it short and sweet as possible. You do not want to go into all these specific hypothetical situations on every little thing. Well, if this goes in here and this goes in, we don't need that. Coaches don't want that. The pitchers are getting ready to, to play. Everybody's in a proper situation where they are on a time schedule to get things going and you don't want to be wasting all this time. All right. So you do that, shake hands again, and uh, basically tell the home coach, you know, we're ready to go. All right. Um, you do not, some don'ts after that, sit there and keep talking to somebody. All right. You don't keep talking to one or more of the head coaches. If you're talking to both of them, that's fine. But we don't want one of the coaches to think that you're buddy-buddy with the other guy. All right? So um, also, if you're not the home plate umpire, you keep quiet. You you introduce yourself and say some things. If you're asked a question, you say something. If there's something very obvious that you have a question about, like, you know, there's some weird thing with a dugout or something like that that isn't addressed, you might mention that. But otherwise, you're not doing some chit-chatting. You're not trying to be Mr. Funny Man or anything like that. You're kind of keeping quiet because it's your plate guy's plate meeting. It's not yours, all right, unless you are addressed. So I think that short and sweet and to the point and getting the um, the nitty-gritty down is what we want to do there. You know, cover any specific rules or special rules that you might have to, but otherwise keep it going, emphasize some sportsmanship, and then you get that game going. All right. And, you know, basically you want them to think this guy means business. He knows what he's doing and we're ready to go. So thou, those are my tips, Stephen, for having a great plate meeting. Uh, hopefully that is uh, helpful to you. And, uh, you know, anybody else out there, let me know in comments or anything on social media or here on the uh, website or by all means, send in a voicemail. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Something that I find very interesting for college baseball this year is the introduction of the National Standard Strike Zone Initiative. Um, and so like their press memo kind of thing reads, recognizing the increasing benefits and utilizing technologies as a tool in NCAA baseball, a National Standard Strike Zone Initiative, as it pertains to technology, is being established allowing officials to use the information to improve their performance. We plan to achieve consistency in not only how anyone would evaluate the information, but develop a more universal measurement of an acceptable uh, correctness rate when interpreting the data. Our goal is to set the standards allowing all stakeholders to engage in meaningful dialogue across the collegiate landscape. So at the higher ends of college baseball, you know, the higher D1 levels, um, you know, they have the, the different strike zone pitch tracking technology that they use. And frequently the umpires will uh, get this information if they request it, or maybe if they don't sometimes too, it can be sent to your, your umpire coordinator. And obviously the teams look at it too. And, um, they evaluate you based on that. And so, of course, the official strike zone in college baseball, which is quite similar to other levels of baseball, too, that most of us work, is, you know, the, um, the width, of course, is 17 inches of home plate. And the bottom of the zone is the hollow beneath the kneecap of the ball player or the hitter, right? And then the top of the strike zone is the midpoint between the shoulders and the top of the pants which frequently ends up being somewhere around their armpit type level, all right, or just below their elbow. So what they're trying to do here is, as they look at these different, you know, technological 
advances that we have for evaluating how somebody calls balls and strikes, and if it is a ball strike, is to give a buffer zone, a two-inch buffer zone, basically all around the strike zone. So basically, if you think of the top of the zone as being like through the the elbow bone, let's say, of the hitter, uh, then you would have about two inches above that, you know, maybe um, just above, you know, that area almost be like where their hands are. If you have that at the bottom of the zone, the hollow of the knee is where it's supposed to be, but you'd have two inches below that. So, you know, that's definitely, you know, the, the bottom part of the kneecap, I would say, or close to that. And of course, you would have your two inch buffer on either side of the plate too, which would be what some people kind of use anyway, or definitely what we might call the gutter, right, of the plate, the area between um, the plate itself and the batter's boxes, which is a little bit more than two inches, but um, pretty close there, all right? And if you call a strike in those areas in that two-inch buffer, then you're good. That's fine. That should be acceptable to everybody. Will it be acceptable to everybody? I think it will be acceptable to umpire coordinators and, and others that, you know, evaluate umpires. Will it be acceptable to coaches? Probably some, probably not others. But I think that, you know, if that's what people understand, that you don't have to be perfect and, whoa, that was, you know, one inch outside of the zone there on the top or bottom, you're a bad umpire, you know, because you called that, um, that that's not really fair either. I mean, you've got to have, you know, some human leeway there. Some human error is allowed. So um, we'll see how this all plays out here as we go. Of course, a lot of levels don't have the evaluative tools to understand that. Now, they might be able to think about it or see it or um, in live action or maybe even on a, a replay of some sort and say, yeah, that was probably within the two-inch buffer and then accept that, you know, um, but uh, we'll see. You know, this has always been a problem. Strike zone, you know, management uh, the last several years as pretty much every major baseball game that you see on television has their box of some sort that, uh, you know, is the strike zone. And we know, well, at least I hope everybody knows that those are not always the most accurate uh, measurements of a strike zone. Um, there's a lot that goes into that, but people see that and they see a pitch that they think is out and they're like, wow, this guy's not good. How did he become a major league umpire? How is he working SEC games or whatever it is that they're doing? Right. So, um, and if, you know, we know that anybody that's called balls and strikes and stood back there, especially at a higher level game or, um, you know, where somebody's throwing 90 miles an hour or something, or has a good breaking pitch that um, it's a tricky thing to do. It's not the uh, easiest thing in the world to sit back there and, and do that and do it consistently, all right? But we have a lot of, you know, armchair umpires out there that think that it's just pretty easy and pretty straightforward, and they're sitting in their in their chair watching the TV, and, and you know, it's pretty obvious what that pitch is, that they could have gotten that one right. That can be quite annoying. I'm sure all of us have been there before when we've had people do such things. But anyway, this National Strike Zone Initiative, I think it's a great idea to try to um, talk about what is acceptable and what is a good strike zone um, because we know balls and strikes are one of the main reasons why people um, get upset and why people get ejected. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, it's uh, probably one of the number one reasons why we have ejections from a game is some issue with uh, the strike zone or, um, you know, somebody thinking that you're doing um, a lacking type of job on your strikes, um, your strike calls. So anyway, we'll see how that kind of works out in the future. And uh, I urge you to check it out as well and maybe Google that National Standards Strike Zone Initiative and see what you think. had listeners express that they like the quizzes and tests that I've done from time to time here on the podcast. So I've got another one here for you. It's a new one that's come from the NCAA umpiring literature just recently. So some of you might be a little familiar with it. And I understand that some of you um, don't work college baseball, but maybe you have aspirations to do so. So some of these questions that are more specific to college baseball um, might not be as um, 
pertinent to you, but um, I think that they're good. But there's a lot of things that are just baseball things. It's a longer quiz here, 25 questions. So I'm going to kind of divide it up into two parts, or at least two segments for my podcast. Um, it'll seem long maybe on the podcast, but uh, you can, of course, zip around on the podcast as needed and listen to it in the spurts that work for you. I know it might be a good thing when you're driving, something to listen to, get your brain thinking if you're stuck in traffic or something like that. So anyway, I'm going to do 13 questions for part one and then um, the other 12 questions for part two. Here is number one. At the beginning of the third inning, the head coach tells the home plate umpire Baker will bat for the fourth batter in the inning, Davis, if the inning lasts that long. Wilson comes to bat instead of Baker and does not tell the home plate umpire. With no outs, he hits into a run-scoring double play. So is it A, Wilson is an illegal substitute and is restricted to the bench when discovered? Is it B, it is permissible for the home plate umpire to record the projected substitute of Baker? Or is it C, Wilson is an unreported substitute upon discovery the home plate umpire will make the needed change in the lineup? Or is it D, the opposing coach has the option of accepting the results of the play or having Wilson declared out? If you pick C, Wilson's an unreported substitute upon discovery. The home plate umpire will make the needed changes in the lineup. You are correct. All right. This is something that uh, newer, less experienced umpires sometimes will mess up in one way or another. And um, yeah, it's common courtesy and the proper procedure to report somebody. But if they're unreported, it's not illegal and they're not out. So don't make that mistake, please. Number two. Jones, the starting pitcher for the home team, feels a pull in his elbow during the warm-up throws. It's not, he's not able to face the first batter and is removed from the game. Ah, this is a problem, right? So is it A, Jones is out for the duration of the game and cannot return at any position? B, Jones may return to pitch later in the game if his coach feels he is able to do so? Is it C, Jones may return to play another position, but he may not pitch. Whereas at D, Jones must face the first batter. If he cannot pitch, he must intentionally walk the batter. Well, if you picked A, you are correct. Um, Jones is out for the duration of the game, and he cannot return at any position. That's the way it is in college baseball. It might be different in other levels, but there you go. Three, if the defensive team has a charged conference, the offensive team, A, may also have a charged conference have a conference which is not charged provided it concludes its conference when the defensive team ends its conference and the game is not further delayed b cannot have a conference c may have a conference but it will count as a charged conference d may have a conference if the defensive team has no objection or e may have a conference without any stipulation if you pick c you're right they may have a conference but it will count as a charged conference. Of course, that's different than, you know, high school baseball and other such things, right? But that's the way it is in college baseball. Four, to start a game, the determination of the weather, grounds, and other conditions are suitable to be made by who? Is it A, the umpire-in-chief, B, the home coach, uh, C, the um, home coach and his athletic director or representative, D, the visiting coach, or E, uh, both coaches must be in agreement. So if you picked C, you are correct. All right. That would be uh, the home coach and athletic director or representative, right? So there you go. Um, you know, obviously once the game starts, it's up to everybody. You know, it's up to the umpires. All right. Number five. A um, batted ball is one hop to the pitcher who gloves the ball. He cannot immediately get the ball out of his glove and tosses the glove with the ball in it to the first baseman. Is it A, the ball remains live and in play? B, the out is declared if the ball glove gets to first base before the runner? Is it C, it is not a, um, it is not a two base award? Or is it D, all of the above? The correct answer here is D, all of the above. The ball remains live and in play. 
Um, the out's declared if the ball glove gets to the first base before the runner. And uh, it's no two-base award because it's legal. All right. Number six, a foul fly ball caroms off the first baseman and is caught by the catcher while still in flight. We have A, the ball remains live and in play. B, the ball becomes dead immediately. Or C, it's a delayed dead ball. Correct answer is A, the ball remains live and in play. Number seven, the ball becomes dead when time is taken to A, make an award when a runner is obstructed by a fielder, B, award an intentional base on balls, C, impose base running penalties, D, both A and C, E, all of the above. And the correct answer there would be all of the above, E. So, yeah, it's dead when you make, um, you know, awards for obstruction or intentional base on balls or imposing base running penalties. Yes, we have a dead ball there. And definitely if you have an intentional base on balls and they ask for that, call time and then, you know, award first base to the batter there. All right. That way you don't have somebody throwing a ball or something like that and some craziness happen. All right. No need for that. Number eight. With runners on second and third, the pitcher intentionally drops a fair bunt in flight. Is it A, the ball remains live and in play? B, the ball becomes dead immediately? C, it is a delayed dead ball? Or D, the batter is out due to a fielder's choice? And if you said A, you are correct. The ball remains live and in play. No infield fly type of thing here or, or anything like that. Of course, second or third, there wouldn't be. But even if it were like a first and second bases loaded thing, same thing there because we can't have that on a bunt. And uh, there you go. As long as, um, you know, th that's legal. Okay. Number nine, a pitcher may assume the wind-up wind up position with A, his hands together in front of his body, B, his hands at his sides or a side, C, either hand in front of the body and the other hand at his side, or D, all of the above? And the answer is all of the above, all right? Number 10, the pitcher places his pivot foot on the pitching plate with the toe of the pivot foot in front of a line through the front edge of the plate and the heel of his pivot foot behind the back edge. His non-pivot foot is behind the pitching plate that is A, an illegal pitching position, B, a legal wind-up position, or C, a legal set position. What do you got there? If you said a legal wind-up position, you are correct. Number 11. With a runner on third base, the pitcher stops his delivery because the batter steps out of the box with one foot because the third base coach was giving a new sign. Do we have A? There is no penalty on either the batter or the pitcher. The umpire shall call time and begin uh, the play anew. B, declare a balk and score the runner from third. C, declare an immediate strike on the batter. Or D, both B and C. The correct answer there would be A, no penalty on either the batter or pitcher. It's call time. Start things over. All right. Obviously, if you get somebody continuing to do that and you think they're trying to draw a balk or, you know, incite a balk of some sort, then you have other issues that you have to take care of. But if it's just, you know, a legitimate thing, that's what you do. Twelve, with the weather being chilly, the relief pitcher asked for more throws to warm up. We have A, the home plate umpire cannot legally authorize additional warm-up throws. We have B. Home plate umpire must grant the request. C, the home plate umpire may grant the request and shall ban the pitching coach from the bullpen. D, the home plate umpire may grant the request. The pitcher being replaced may not return to pitch for the balance of the game. Or is it E, the home plate umpire may grant the request if the umpire deems it to be a special circumstance? Well, the correct answer there is A. The home plate umpire cannot legally authorize additional warm-up throws. It's in the rule book. Follow it. If you're playing the game, you follow the same rules. We don't modify it because of the weather, okay? 
Think about it for a second. All right. And then one more question here for part one, number 13. With a 3-0 count, the batter permits a pitch that is a ball within the batter's box to hit him. Is it A, the batter stays at bat with the same count of 3-0? Is it B, the batter stays at bat with a count of 3-1? Is it C, the batter is awarded first base for being hit by the pitch? Or is it D, the batter is awarded first base for receiving ball four? Um, so here we have C, the batter is awarded first base for being hit by the pitch. It would have been ball four too because it was out of the strike zone. Now, he did not intentionally try to get hit by the pitch. So therefore, we give him the benefit of the doubt and we give him first base. All right. And that's the way we roll that here in college baseball. Of course, there is the rule in college baseball, no matter if it's a strike or a ball, if you intentionally try to get hit by the pitch, we deem that, we judge that as an umpire, the plate umpire, then it's an automatic strike. And of course, the batter remains there. And if it's strike three, then he is out, right? I wish that they would move that rule to all levels of baseball. I think it is a very good rule. And I think that it avoids a lot of that, um, you know, people trying to get hit with their elbow guards and all the other stuff that they wear now. So that concludes part one of the quiz. And uh, I'll have another segment that has part two with the remaining 12 questions.
All right, time to do the NCAA Test Yourself 25 Question Quiz Part 2. So we're starting here with question 14. We did 1 through 13 in Part 1. So question 14 is, with no outs, R3 from third base is attempting to steal home. I guess he's Ty Cobb or something. B2 contacts the catcher on the follow-through of his swing, causing F2 to not catch the pitch, which rolls away, allowing R3 to score. Do we have A, since B2 did not intentionally cause his bat to hit F2, there is no out for interference. However, R3 has returned to third base. Is it B, B2 is guilty of interference, R3 is declared out, and B2 continues to bat? Is it C, B2 is guilty of interference. Both B2 and R2 are declared out. Or is it D? B2 is guilty of interference. B2 is declared out. And R3 is returned to third. So that's a tricky one. But if you picked A, you are correct. That would be, since it wasn't intentional, in your judgment, right? Uh, there's no out for interference. But we can't let that guy go. So he's got to go back there. And... Uh, and we continue to have the at-bat. Probably going to get an argument about that, but that is the, the ruling in collegiate baseball. Number 15. If any situation arises that could lead to an appeal by the defense on the last play of the game, the appeal must be made, A, while all umpires are on the field, B, while an umpire is on the field, uh, C, before the infielders cross the foul line. D, before the pitcher and all infielders cross the foul lines and the catcher has left the dirt circle around home plate. Or E, before the official scorekeeper declares the game over. So I've never heard of that before. But anyway, if you said D, you are correct. Before the pitcher and all infielders cross the foul lines and the catcher has left the dirt circle around the plate. All right, 16. The runner and the batter runner are both between first and second base uh, bases when the left fielder throws the ball to third base. The ball gets past the third baseman and rolls into the dugout. You got a circus now. You have A. Both runners are awarded third base. Since they cannot both occupy third, the lead runner is awarded home. Is it B? The lead runner is awarded second. And the batter runner must remain at first. Is it C? Both the runner and the batter runner are awarded home. Or is it D? The lead runner is awarded third and the batter runner is awarded second. If you said D, you are correct. Lead runner is awarded third. That's what he would get. And too bad for the second, the runner behind him. He just gets second because he can't go to third because the guy's already there, right? 17. With a runner on first base, the batter hits a ground ball to the second baseman. The second baseman attempts to tag the runner advancing from first, but misses him. The second baseman then throws the first, but sails the ball into the dugout. The runner and the batter runner are awarded what? Okay, so this is like, what's the first play kind of thing and all that. Is it A, two bases from their position at the time of the pitch? Is it B, two bases from the time of the throw? Is it C, two bases from the time the ball becomes dead? Or is it D, one base? If you said B, you are correct. Two bases from the time of the throw, from you know where they are located, the runners. 18, with the bases loaded and two outs, B6 steps into the batter's box. F2 notices the bat and asks the home plate umpire to check it. This is always a good thing. <laughs> it doesn't cause any trouble. Anyway, the umpire inspects the bat and agrees that it is missing the bat testing sticker and is therefore illegal. So, do we have A, the bat is removed from the game and the batter is allowed to get a different legal bat to use? Do we have B, the batter is out because he stepped into the batter's box with an illegal bat and is removed from, and, and it is, the bat, uh, removed from the game. Is it C? If the illegal bat were not detected until after the first pitch, it would be too late to do anything about it. 
Is it D? B6 is ejected for using an illegal bat because the coach had verified all the equipment was legal during the pregame meeting. At least we hope so if you ask the question, right? Well, anyway, if you said B, you are correct. The batter is out because he stepped into the batter's box with an illegal bat and it is removed the bat from the game. It's his responsibility to have a legal bat and to notice that the sticker isn't there, you know, and do something about that, like get a different bat, okay? 19. With one out and no count, R1 is attempting to steal second. The pitch to B3 is in the dirt, and B3 does not swing. However, once the ball is past him, B3 waves the bat and hinders F2's throw to second. R1 is ruled safe on the play. What do we got here? We got A, no interference, and the play stands. B, B3 is guilty of interference. B3 has a 1-0 count, and R1 is out. Or do we have C? B3 is guilty of interference. B3 is out, and R1 returns to first. If you said the last one, C, you are correct. B3 is guilty of interference. B3 is out, and R1 is returned to first. So in most situations, except for when we have like two outs or guys coming home, we know some of the exceptions, the person that does the interfering is the one that's out, okay? Most of the time, like 90% of the time, right? So just kind of keep that in mind. Because, you know, they did the illegal thing. They're the ones who should be cleared out, okay? Anyway, number 20, the first batter in the bottom of the sixth inning receives a base on balls. The pitching coach makes the first trip of the game to the mound. After the trip, a pinch hitter comes to the plate. The head coach then comes out of the dugout to replace the pitcher. So we've got different kind of uh, rules for this here in college baseball, but let's see if you can get it. A, warn the head coach that he cannot make a second trip. If he continues, he is ejected, but the pitcher may remain in the game with no penalty. As a B, allow the trip, but a substitution is not necessary. C, warn the head coach that he cannot make a second trip. If he continues, he is ejected and the pitcher will be substituted for after he completes the at-bat? Or is it D, allow the trip and the substitution is mandatory? So what is your answer? If you said the last one, you are correct. Allow the trip and the substitution is mandatory. You know, hopefully he's got somebody ready to go. 21. With R1 on first, R2 on second, and one out, B4 bunts a ball high into the air between F1 and F2. F1 easily settles under the ball, but allows it to fall to the ground untouched. He then picks up the ball and the defense turn and, and picks up the ball and the defense turns an easy double play. Alright, so do we have A? The play stands. This is a double play. Do we have B? This is an infield fly and before it's out, ball remains in play. And runners may advance at their own peril. Is it C? This is an intentionally dropped ball, and before is out, the ball is dead, and runners return to their previously occupied bases. Is it D? This is an intentionally dropped ball. The ball is dead before it's aboard a first base, and the other runners are forced to advance one base by the batter's award. Well, a bunt cannot be an infield fly, so it is A. The play stands. Double play. Runners need to know that. Need to be coached better. All right, 22. With R1 on first base, no outs, and a 1-0 count on B2, F1 fails to come to a complete stop and is called for a balk. His pitch is wild and eludes F2, going all the way to the backstop. R1 attempts to advance to third, and he's thrown out. So do we have A, B2 and all runners did not advance at least one base, so return R1 second base. Do we have B? The play on R1 stands, and he's out. The block is still acknowledged, and the count remains 1-0 on the batter. Or is it C? Immediately called time when the pitcher box R1 is awarded second. Well, remember we have live box in college baseball, which is one of the biggest differences between that and high school baseball. So we have B as the correct answer. The play on R1 stands, he's out, the balk is still acknowledged, and the count remains 1-0 on the batter. 23. 
Daniel is listed as the DH for the pitcher. Baker in the third spot in the batting lineup. In the fourth inning, Baker bats when it is Daniel's time to bat and hits a single. Do we have A? This is an illegal substitution. Baker's called out and he will be restricted to the dugout and Daniel substituted for. Do we have B? This is batting out of order. Baker's time at bat is nullified. Daniel's out. And the next proper batter is the player who follows Daniel. Do we have C? The move is legal. The DH role is terminated for the remainder of the game, and Baker will continue to bat in the third spot. Or do we have D? This move is legal. Baker can become the pitcher DH and continue the bat in the third spot. So in college baseball, D is the correct answer. Legal. He can become the pitcher DH and continue the bat in that spot. Number 24. With R1 on first base and R3 on third base and two outs, B5 hits a slow ground ball back to F1. F1 fields the ball and throws it to F2. R3 is ruled safe on the tag play at home, but F2 quickly makes a play on B5 going to first, and B5 is out. So do we have A, score the run, as this is an intervening play, or do we have B, do not allow any runs to score? Hopefully, you picked B. Don't allow any runs to score because the batter runner was not safe at first, so he's out. It doesn't matter what happened at the play. Plate, right? One last question, number 25. An assistant third base coach comes onto the field to argue a call at second base. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay. A, the assistant coach should be restricted to the dugout. B, the assistant coach should be immediately ejected from the game. C, the assistant coach should be ejected and the head coach should be restricted to the dugout. D, both the assistant coach and the head coach should be ejected from the game. Or E, the assistant coach should be warned to immediately return to his position and may be ejected you know, if he does not. The correct answer is E. The assistant coach should be warned to immediately return to his position and may be ejected. Definitely give a warning first. You know, if he's acting like a complete fool, you know, maybe he gets ejected. But that is the correct answer on the quiz. So there you go. That's the end of part two of the NCAA Test Yourself quiz. Hopefully you got a lot of those correct. And uh, hopefully it was rewarding for you. It made you think a little bit about baseball here in these winter months. Mm -hmm.